0: Father, thank You that You are so faithful to us to provide for us what we could never provide for ourselves. You've given us life through Your Son and our Savior, Jesus Christ. He bore the complete weight of our sin and Your wrath against our sin. And You triumphantly raised Him from the dead we recognize that that is authentication of your acceptance of his sacrifice on our behalf. And for all those that have trusted Jesus, you have granted to us a righteousness that we do not possess of our own, a righteousness that is from you through Jesus. Help us this morning that we would worship you in fullness, empowered by your spirit reverencing you and your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Colossians chapter 2, please. Colossians chapter 2. I want to introduce you to a British artist. Now, the pronunciation of his name is uh, debated, so if I brutalize it, it's because I heard it. And then there are some other pronunciations, so if you know the guy's name, and I brutalize his name, forgive me for that. His name is Sean Greenhall. When he found himself as a, an artist not succeeding. He wasn't making ends meet. He was living with his parents, and this wasn't exactly his plan. So he embarked on a different way of utilizing his creative abilities, and he began to create and sell fake artifacts. After roping his father and apparently his brother into this scheme, Um, He tried to sell museums a small silver object inscribed with Old English and claimed that it contained a piece of the cross of Jesus. Experts at the British Museum and English Heritage realized that the silver box was a fake, but thought the wood might be real. So George Greenhall sold that piece for 100 pounds. Like 100 bucks, 150 bucks, something like that. Alright, that's pretty good. Then he sold another piece, and another piece. He did this for nearly two decades. Greenhall produced fake paintings and sculptures from copies of ancient artifacts to works from famous artists such as L.S. Lowry and Barbara Hepworth. His other pieces included a Roman plate, golden statuettes, and a Victorian vase. His father would claim that they were all heirlooms that he had found magically lying around the house, as though finding a seemingly infinite. Infinite number of priceless relics under a sheet in your attic is completely normal. Museums and historians kept ruling them genuine. Their most successful con was an Egyptian statuette called Ar- Armana Princess, which they sold to Bolton Museum for two, uh, in 2003 for £440,000. So we're talking about nearly a half a million dollars. Pretty good. Ironically, the museum thought that they were tricking the green halls by shelling out much less money than the ancient statue was worth. In reality, the statuette had been carved in just a few weeks and made to look uh, old by using tea and clay. In the end, the green halls were caught, blah, 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 blah. We know how all this stuff goes. $1.35 million dollars. That's how much they scammed people for. Even very smart people can be deceived by a cleverly devised plan. Sometimes things that appear to be genuine are something entirely different. But what is really troubling, brothers and sisters in Christ, and and anyone that may be here, what is really troubling is that sometimes we settle for a counterfeit When the real thing is available to us. Don't settle for anything less than the real deal. Don't settle for anything less than the real substance. Don't settle for anything less than Jesus. I ask you this question, are you settling for a shadow? Let's look please at Colossians chapter 2 beginning in verse 16 where God's Word says this, So let no one judge you in food or in drink or in regarding a festival or a new moon or Sabbaths, which are a shadow of things to come. But the substance is of Christ. Let no one cheat you of your reward, taking delight in false humility and worship of angels, intruding into those things uh, which he has not seen, vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind, and not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together by joints and ligaments, grows with the increase that is from God. Therefore, if you died with Christ from the basic principles of the world, why, as though living in the world, do you subject yourselves to regulations, do not touch, do not taste, do not handle, which all concern things? which perish with the using, according to the commandments and doctrines of men. These things indeed have an appearance of wisdom and self-imposed religion, false humility and neglect of the body, but are of no value against the indulgence of the flesh. As we look at this passage this morning, we're going to look at it in two phases. First of all, we will look at what religion tries to do, and secondly, we will look at what Christ actually does. Now, we're going to define religion very broadly. Religion, we can define broadly like this. Any man-made attempt to make us right or pleasing to God. Any man-made attempt to make us right or pleasing to God. This is how we're going to define religion this morning, because I think it's a very broad uh, definition, I think it will help us. So what we will note first of all is four failures of religion. Four failures of religion. Here's the first. Religion judges you by external measures. This is what Paul tells us beginning in verse 16. He says this, So let no one judge you in food, or in drink, or regarding a festival, or a new moon, Sabbaths. So he first tells, tells them that don't let people judge you by food and drink. Well, we, we understand that there were uh, law codes under the Mosaic Covenant where there were certain things they should and shouldn't drink. Okay, we understand that. And there were certain celebrations that were prescribed, festivals, feasts, uh, new moons and Sabbaths. We understand that these were all there and available. The question we have to ask ourselves is this. Very important question, and it's a distinctive question. Did the dietary laws of the Mosaic Covenant make Israel unique? Yes. The dietary laws of the Old Covenant made Israel unique. Second question. Did the dietary laws of the Old Covenant make Israel spiritual? No. Okay, so we ask a follow up question. Did the celebrations of festivals, new moons, and Sabbaths make Israel unique? Yes. Did the celebration of festivals, new moons, and Sabbaths make Israel spiritual? The answer is no. It is not. Ceremonies, foods, and activities of any variety, whatever the ceremony might be, whatever the food might be, whatever the activity might be, it will never make anyone spiritual. Additionally, as we look at this concept, all of those food and dietary restraints, all of the the celebrations of particular days, the Bible tells us they were all fulfilled. They were fulfilled in Jesus Christ. He came not to destroy the law, but to fulfill the law, and He fulfilled them to the fullest measure. They're all completed. This is why God told Peter that previously unclean animals were what? Clean. Don't call what I've said clean. Don't call it unclean. How did this happen? Because Jesus Christ fulfilled the law. He didn't cancel the law. He didn't destroy that. He fulfilled the law in our stead. This is what He has done. Take a look a little further, please. Hold your hand here because we're going to come right back. But look at Romans 14 just for a moment. Romans 14. So God told Peter he could eat those previously unclean animals. Not because things, God says that it's not unclean. And this is why also Paul can rightly tell the Roman believers that they should be fully convinced in their own mind. It says in Romans chapter 14, beginning in verse one, "Receive one another." excuse me, receive one who is weak in the faith, but not to disputes over doubtful things. For one believes he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats only vegetables. Let him who eats excuse me, let not him who eats despise him who does not eat, and let not him who does not eat judge him who eats, for God has received him. Why are you to judge another's servant? In other words, why why would you judge God's servant? To his own master he stands or falls. Indeed, he will be made to stand, for God is able to make him stand. One person esteems one day above another, another esteems every day alike. Let each be fully convinced in his own mind. He who observes the day, observes it to the Lord. And he who does not observe the day, to the Lord he does not observe it. He who eats, eats to the Lord, for he gives God thanks. And he who does not eat, to the Lord he does not eat, and gives God thanks. He's telling them, be convinced in your own mind. These these concepts are not spiritual Remember, Jesus did not come to destroy the law, but to fulfill it. Suffice it to say, as we look at this concept about food and drink, celebration of days, whether they be uh, festivals, new moons, or Sabbaths, they did not produce spirituality. Suffice it to say, one of religion's failures is that it judges by external measures. He's saying, don't let someone judge you in accordance to these external measures. It doesn't tell you whether someone's spiritual or not. Many people have fulfilled many laws externally and look really spiritual. And guess what? Inside, they are what? Full of dead men's bones. They are whited. Sepulchres. These external means, measures do not tell you the tale. Don't let anyone judge you that way. Religion doesn't work that way. Here's a second failure of religion: is this back in Colossians chapter 2? Religion attempts to rule you with non-biblical standards. Religion attempts to rule you with non-biblical standards. Take a look, please, beginning in verse 18. Let no one cheat you of your reward taking delight in false humility and worship of angels, intruding into those things which he has not seen, vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind. He gives us this this command right at the start of verse 18. Let no one cheat you. The term there, we could use disqualify, but the, the term really gives us the impression of an umpire. This this disqualifying, it's it's an umpire. He's ruling or assessing. What is he assessing? They're essentially saying the Colossian believers they don't measure up. I don't know if any of you have seen a, a little league game anytime recently. It's fun and funny to watch a little league game. You've got this umpire behind the plate, and the ball comes in and it's like at this guy's eyes or above his strike. You think, well, that's interesting. Down at the ankle, strike, good job. Excellent. And we remember this guy's not a professional, he's back there just umpiring away. And then you watch this guy. He's running from third base. He's coming in. He slides in. You can see his foot clearly hit the plate, and the tag comes in late and hits him up high. And and you say, he's safe. Out! Out! Listen, it's just a rec league. It's alright. It's an umpire. He's making judgments. Well, when the judgments aren't the right judgments, we get some problems, right? And if the the source of those judgments is is a mess, well, that's even worse. It reminds us that man's judgment is not always accurate. And and so Paul says, let no one umpire you, let let no one assess you by this this way in such a way that that you're listening to to human judgment and allowing that judgment to to dissuade you. Man's judgment isn't always accurate. And that judgment that he makes sometimes is more flawed because the criteria by which he... Assesses is wrong. And that's what Paul goes on to tell us. Not only are they umpiring, here they are, they're making these judgments. Listen to how they're judging. Listen to the source of their judgments. He says in verse 18, he says, they're taking delight in false humility. Taking delight in false humility. What is that talking about? Well, the idea is some kind of an asceticism, um, a fasting, uh, these things that are, that are again, external, they, they're looking around and they're saying, if you do these kinds of things, it will tell you whether you're spiritual or not. Now, you're familiar with the background of Colossians, and they were involved in these uh, pre-Gnostic thoughts, and the idea was that the, the flesh is bad and spirit is good, and so if the flesh is bad, you want to deny it, you want to make sure that you don't indulge in it. Well, and that's really the context of this passage, right? There's certain drinks and, and certain, certain things to eat and, and certain observances. And then later on in the passage, he says, we've got this uh, false humility. We, at the end of it, he, he talks about the fact that there's an appearance of wisdom and self imposed religion, false humility, neglect of the body. So here we have got all these external measures in place, false humility. Are you doing the things that I think are spiritual? Don't let people judge you that way. It says, and also, don't take taking delight, these, these, these umpires, take delight in worship of angels. Now, there's a, there's a lot of ways that that can be taken. Essentially, you could look at it as, okay, well, the, the angels were involved in the transmission of the law, so maybe it's kind of talking about the law again. Or it could be the actual um, saying, hey, look at these spirit beings, aren't they special? And, and really, because we're, we are material and we're evil, right? If we're believing in pre-Gnosticism, if we're evil, I can't really go straight to God because He doesn't have anything to do with evil, which is why they say that Jesus wasn't, didn't truly come in the flesh. Well, I have to go through the angels. I'm going to worship via the angels. It could be about that. Uh, it's really unclear. Whatever the case may be. Who do you worship? Who do you worship? That, that really is the bottom line here. There are lots of ways to take lots of passages of Scripture, but it's very easy to see the intent. And the intent here is this. Don't let someone umpire you with regard to aesthetic kind of external measures and a kind of worship that leads away from the source of that worship, which is to be God. And so we've got these, these criteria that are not good. He says the, they intrude into those things which he has not seen. Isn't that interesting? So here they are. You remember these, these super spiritual saints. They, they were coming into the church and saying, hey, we have this special knowledge. These are things that God has told us. But one of the things that's interesting about when someone says God told me, it's like, well, how do you combat that? To that person. I'm not saying how do you combat it from a theological perspective. I don't know how to do that. I'm talking about to that person because they're going to say, well, well, God told me. And you're going to say, well, well, he couldn't have told you, but I was there and you weren't. That's how they do it. They just, this, it's, it's illogical for us. But for them, what they're saying is, I know that God has told me this, and I want to bring this information to you because you don't have this knowledge. And Paul's saying, don't let someone umpire you about stuff that they can't even verify. It's, it, it, doesn't, it contradicts Scripture. It's an easy judgment for us to say, okay, well, what you're saying doesn't align with Scripture, and if what you're saying does align with Scripture, God already revealed it, and so really, why are you telling me that God revealed something to you? Am I, am I correct about this? If it contradicts Scripture, it's no good. If it's in Scripture, why are you saying God revealed it to you? Because He revealed it to everybody. It, it kind of doesn't make a whole lot of sense, does it? Well, this is their, the source of their judgments. They, they, it, it's external it's, it's worship that involves angels instead of the very substance itself. It's things that are unverifiable. And then it says they're vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind. The word in the ESV is sensuous mind. It has to do with your senses. I feel it. This is what I feel. Let me tell you something, friends. Feeling is important. If you're worshiping God, there should be some feel to it. Because if you're going to worship, you're worshiping with your whole being, and you are intellect, you are emotion, and you are will. So your emotions are important. So don't misunderstand what I'm about to say. But your feelings don't matter with regard to truth. If something is true, it's either true or it's not. It doesn't matter how you feel about it. You might feel really strongly that something's true. But if you're wrong, guess what? You're still wrong. It's still not true. Just because you feel like it's true. So here they are. They've they've got these these minds that that are puffed up because they feel something. You remember this about our flesh. Paul said it. He made it very clear. I remind myself about it, and I'll try to remind you about it. Paul said, I know that in me, that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells. So if they're vainly puffed up by their fleshly mind, that, that's not, this is not a thumbs up from Paul on their methodology. Their methodology gets a, a, a definite thumbs down. What is the thumbs down about? Well, they're judging on the wrong criteria. Well, he goes on and tells us in verse 22. Take a look, please. We'll start in verse 21 for a little context. Do not touch, do not taste, do not handle, which all concern things which perish with the using, according to the commandments... And doctrines of men. Is this a positive statement or a negative statement? It's negative. So here's what religion is trying to do. It's trying to umpire us based upon external measures. It's trying to umpire us based on um, non biblical standards. When when Isaiah wrote about this, which is this is kind of pulled from Isaiah in uh, from a statement from Jesus. When Isaiah said this, he said the Lord said in Isaiah 29:13, because this people draws near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips while their hearts are far, far from me and, they fee- excuse me and their fear of me is a commandment taught by men. So there's, there's its origin, its first statement. Uh, and when Jesus says it, he says it even more plainly. It says in Mar- Mark 7, 7, In vain they do worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Now, I want you to listen and I'd like you to listen carefully. What is tragic is that many use even the actual words of Scripture and create law where the gospel should reside. This is a real problem in church in the 21st century. In other words, we can look at the truth of God's word in all of its beauty and we can communicate it in such a way to make it demand what only God can supply. I will use an illustration. Think about this. Here's a Bible passage. It says in the book of 1 Peter, Love one another with a pure heart, fervently. It's a biblical truth, right? No one contends that that is a biblical truth. We know that it is a demand from God, yes? Yes? Okay. Without rooting this command in the grace of God, we ask brothers and sisters in Christ to do what they absolutely cannot do. You can bring a command upon someone and say, hey, now go. Everyone, you know that God has told you to love. Now, go therefore and love. You know what that is? That's making a demand when that passage is all rooted in the grace of God. So, here's what we have. We we understand this. The fruit of the Spirit, how does that go? How does it start? Anyone? Oh, love. It's a fruit of what? Who's the source of that love? Am I the source of that love? Okay. It's not something I can muster up because demand is placed upon me. And this is one of the biggest problems in biblical Christianity today. That we think we can learn to do what God's Word says. The statement still holds true that Jesus made to Nicodemus. That which is born of the flesh, is flesh. And that which is born of the Spirit is spiritual. The Spirit produces spiritual fruit. So here's, here's where we come to, 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 to think this through. When I see a demand like this, love one another with a pure heart fervently, and I see myself not lining up with that demand, what do I do then? This is where we're going to find out if we understand grace. If I said, hey, oh, I, just didn't, I just didn't meet the demand. Hey, listen, it's grace. God would have produced that if he wanted it in me. Is that how that works? Oh, because I'm pretty sure he just told me he wanted it in me, right? So, so it's not like, well, if God wanted to produce it, he would have produced it and I'd be fine. That's not what grace is all about. What I'll find out is that there is a way to measure my understanding of grace. If my first act, after recognizing my failure regarding love is to confess my sin and to ask God to fill me with His Spirit, well, because I need the filling of the Spirit, right? Because that's how we walk in the Spirit, and that's how the fruit of the Spirit takes place. If my first act after recognizing my failure is to confess my sin and ask to be filled with the Spirit, I'm I'm recognizing that grace is necessary to fulfill the demands of Scripture. If, on the other hand, my response is, oh man, I'm really failing at this this loving thing, I better try harder next time. That's allowing law to enter where only the gospel can supply. This is the problem with religion, because religion brings this, and they bring a fleshly substitute for a spiritual reality, and the spiritual reality, that's the substance. But too often we settle for the shadow that kind of looks like the spiritual. Because we can parallel spiritual fruit a bit in our lives. We can You've all done it. I've done it. We're just, listen, I know I'm not supposed to speak to this person like this. And so we kind of bite our tongues and we could, you know, and we say the right thing. And it looked like we responded properly. But we know what's going on inside. That's flesh. Folks, we know that religion is a failure, we know that our attempts to please God are a failure. Religion tries to judge you with external measures and it attempts to rule you with non-biblical standards and with non-biblical methods. And so we follow a little bit further in this passage and we see a third failure of religion. It's this. Religion offers man-made solutions to a God-sized problem. Now again, we're saying a kind of similar concept here, but look at what he says beginning in verse 20. We're in Colossians chapter 2. Look at verse 20. The Bible says, Therefore, if you died with Christ from the basic principles of the world, why, as though living in the world, do you subject yourselves to regulations? Do not touch, do not taste, do not handle, which all concerning excuse me, which all concern things which perish with the using according to the commandments and doctrines of men. So here he asks this question Why do you subject yourselves to regulation? This is a very interesting word. The word is dogmatizo. You hear something in there that you've recognized? Dogmatic? Yes. And so here's what he's saying. Why would you come under the dominion of a dogmatic scheme that tries to dominate you, to tell you how to go about this, and the way that it looks like it's, don't do this, and don't do that, and don't do the other. And what he says is, these things, all these things, they all perish with the using. It doesn't produce something that's eternal, it's all temporal, external, um, non-spiritual items. Now, Paul talks about this elsewhere. Take a look at one other passage. We're going to come right back to Colossians. Look at Galatians chapter 4 for a moment. Religion offers man-made solutions to a God-sized problem. Don't do this, don't do that. And he's asking, why are you coming subject to their dogmatic, wrong teaching? Can you feel the warning that's going on in Colossians chapter 2? If we had more time, we would actually look at the whole chapter and look at the warning in verse 3, the warning in verse 8, the warning in verse 16 and 18. He's warning them throughout. And, And just by the way, here's a sneak peek. He gives one solution every time. I can't, can't believe you'd guess what that solution is. Galatians 4, beginning in verse 8, he says this, But then, indeed, when you did not know God, you served those which by nature are not gods. But now, after you have known God, or rather are known by God, how is it that you turn again to the weak and beggarly elements to which you desire again to be in bondage? Isn't that interesting? you know anyone that desires to be in bondage? Spiritually, you do not seek to be in bondage. Your flesh is so used to bondage. It's like second nature. It wants to be in bondage. It's a crazy thing. And he's warning them. Why do you want to be in bondage? He says in verse 10, You observe days and months and seasons and years. I am afraid for you lest I have labored for you in vain. And so he's really saying a very similar concept here in Galatians chapter 4 as he was here in Colossians 2. And what is that? Don't come in, don't come under the dogmatic teachings of religion because religion only offers temporal, man-made External solutions to what only God can accomplish. Religion tries to judge you with external measures. It attempts to rule you by non biblical standards. It offers man made solutions for God sized problems. One more of these failures of religion is this Religion focuses on appearance, but it cannot produce the substance. Religion focuses on the appearance, but it cannot produce the substance. Look at verse 17. He said in verse 16 about the food and drink and festivals, etc. Verse 17, which are a shadow of things to come, but the substances of Christ. Verse 23, these things indeed have an appearance of wisdom and self-imposed religion, false humility and neglect of the body, but are of no value against the indulgence of the flesh. No value against the indulgence of the flesh. And so he's really giving us some insight, and, and I want to I focus in on something here for a second. We think that if we can get ourselves to understand, hey, listen, you're not supposed to do these things, that we won't do them. And we all know that doesn't work. It's the proverbial kid in the cookie jar. Don't, don't get any cookies out of the cookie jar. What's happening now? Ooh, there are cookies in there? Oh, I'm not supposed to do that. No cookies out of the cookie jar. Mom will give me a cookie later. I can have a cookie now. Cookie jar's over there. She's not looking. There's cookies there. It's a jar. Jars are meant to be open. Cookies are meant to be eaten. I think I'm going to get a cookie out of the cookie jar. It's a good idea. What the law does for us, the law never minify, minimizes the desires of the flesh. The law magnifies. The desires of the flesh. Paul has told us this in several places. I want to draw your attention to Romans chapter 7 just for a moment. Romans chapter 7, beginning in verse 7. If you're not there by the time I start reading, you'll catch up, okay? Romans 7, 7 through 10, where God's Word says this, what shall we say then? Is the law sin? Certainly not. On the contrary, I would not have known sin except through the law. For I would not have known covetousness unless the law had said, you shall not covet. But sin, taking occasion by the commandment, produced in me all manner of evil desire. For apart from the law, sin was... What's it say? Dead. I was alive once without the law. But when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. And the commandment, which was to bring life... I found to bring death. What is he telling us? God brings forth this shining beam of truth. And the law is not bad. The law is good. And what I recognize is I am not. The law is good. I am not. The law is right. I am not. The law was our schoolmaster to bring us to God. And friends, how do we come to God? I am the way, the truth and the life. No man comes into the Father, but by me." But, uh, Paul said in Galatians 2:21, "If righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for what? No purpose. David Garland made this statement. I think it's uh, it's valuable for our consideration. It is hollow, or hollow, excuse me, I do that all the time. It is hollow, the law, because it consists of idle notions. It is deceptive because it only has the appearance of wisdom and is incapable of producing what it promises. So we've noted some ways that Colossians 2 tells us that religion fails. The religion attempts, but fails to produce spirituality. What I want to do, just for a couple of moments here, is to counter that. Let's look at Paul's counter to this warning, or better stated, let's look at the solution that is offered. What we're going to do, we went, we went from verse 16 down to verse 23, and now we're going to work our way back up. Okay, Just going to go in reverse order now. We noticed already that... Religion focuses on appearance but cannot produce the substance. What we want to recognize is that while religion cannot fight the indulgence of the flesh, Jesus Christ has conquered that foe. Remember, it says at the end, these are of no value against the indulgence of the flesh. The law can't stop the indulgence of the flesh. But, but I want to tell you that I know someone who can And we looked at this last week in Colossians 2.11. Take a look, please. Colossians 2.11. In Him you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, something spiritual, by putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. You were buried with Him in baptism in which you were also raised with Him through faith in the working of God who raised Him from the dead. As you get into chapter 3, he says, If then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above where Christ is sitting. Where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. Set your affection or your mind on things above, not on things of the earth. For you what? Oh. Now we've talked about that death thing before. A dead person can't do anything. Am I correct? Can a dead person sin? No. No. Crucifixion with Christ, does it have any impact to today? Yeah, because sin's dominion no longer resides over us. Unless we say, I'm going to yield my members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin. See, what has happened is God broke the chains of sin's dominion through our union with Jesus Christ. He died, and guess what? For a believer, we died with Him. And as a result of that... Sin no longer has dominion over us. And so, what religion tries to do, it can't do, but Jesus has done. As we work further up the passage, religion offers man-made solutions for a God-sized problem. While religion offers man-made solutions for spiritual development, God through Christ produces spiritual growth. Now, we didn't look at this aside from just in, in passing. Look at verse 19 this is their biggest condemnation it says and not holding fast to the head from whom all the body nourished and knit together by joints and ligaments grows with the increase that is from from god religion here do this do this while neglecting to hold on to christ who gives us life, and through Him, God produces spiritual growth. And so what religion offers to do, it can't do, but guess what? God, through Christ, has done. We work ourselves another rung up this um, discussion in the book of Colossians. While religion attempts to rule us with non-biblical standards, God's grace found in Jesus Christ can rule our hearts and minds. Take a look at chapter 3, and verse 15 and following. So again, we're talking about that umpiring. Religion tries to umpire us, right, with with the wrong standards, wrong methods, and wrong source. Well, the same word rule is used here in Colossians chapter 3, and verse 15. Let the peace of God rule. There's the word umpire. Let the peace of God rule in your hearts to which you were, all, you were called in one body and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom. What will happen then? It'll, you'll be teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. And so what we see in chapter 3... Is he's countering what happened back in chapter 2. Don't let religion umpire you with the wrong methods and the wrong standards and the wrong source. Instead, allow the right standard and the right method and the right source come your way. And Guess what is that source? It's found in the person of Jesus Christ. That's what it is. The source is there. We have what we need. We have what we need. And finally, as we work our way up, we come to that first point, which is our last point, while religion judges us by external measures, Jesus Christ is the judge, the jury, the defense attorney, and the Savior. There is no more comforting reality than to know that the one who is your judge is your Savior. There is nothing like that, friends. We don't go before the judgment seat of Christ with shame of face. We go and we recognize that the one who assesses us is the one who paid the price for us, who provides righteousness for us. He is the judge and the jury and the Savior all at the same time. This is the Savior that the Bible is constantly pointing us to. The Bible says in Romans chapter 14, and verse 10, But why do you judge your brother? Or why do you show contempt for your brother? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. See Paul counters all of the false teaching with a presentation of Jesus Christ as the ultimate solution. False teaching settles for shadows and counterfeits and things that really in things that only find their substance and reality in Christ. Are you settling for a shadow? Are you settling for something that is not real? Or are you recognizing that the substance is found in the person of Jesus Christ, who is the source of what we know to be the Gospel? The Gospel presents us with the real deal. The Gospel offers us the substance. The Gospel produces, listen carefully, the Gospel produces what the justice of God demands the charge we have to take from our consideration this morning is this. Hold fast to the head. Hold fast to Christ, because that was the real problem that these false teachers had. He's warning them about judging and and umpiring. He's talking about man-made solutions and all, all of these things. But their real problem is found in verse 19. Not holding fast to the head. That's where we have our connection. It's our union with Christ. And so I present to you that same solution. Hold fast to the head. Believer, what is the source and substance of your faith? Hey, listen, I used to be like this, and now I'm like this. Oh, brother, that's the law. What do you hold on to? I was like this, and look at who Christ is. I was like this, look at what Christ has done. I was like this, and look at where Christ can take me. He's the substance of our message, and our hope, and our joy, and our rejoicing. It's not in us. It's not in people. It's not in a church. It's always found in the head. Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father, it's a privilege to know that we have everything we need for life and for godliness. It is a privilege to know that you've given us the substance. So we will not, by your grace, we will not settle for a shadow. Because we know the shadow can't satisfy and it can't produce what it promises. But you, through Christ, have and will. We trust you. We pray for anyone here that's never trusted Jesus and they don't have this solution and they don't have this substance. We pray, Father, that even today, as they observe, as they listen, as your Spirit does His great work, they might turn to Jesus, the substance of the faith of the Gospel, that they might have life, that they might have it more abundantly. Help those of us that know you, Father, that we would would not settle for anything less than the true righteousness that comes only through Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.